All right, lesson number six on tithes and offerings. We call this uh, tithes and offerings in the Gospels. And so we've systematically been teaching on this subject. Uh, so it only made sense to cover what Jesus Christ had to say concerning tithes, offerings, and giving uh, throughout his earthly ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's the subject of this lesson, and we're going to see what the Lord has to say. Uh, as you guys know, when I teach on doctrinal subjects, we use the, the, the understanding or the model of the diamond with all the different facets. And the more scriptures and the more uh, perspectives you can get on a Bible subject, the more a full understanding you can grasp. So we've covered almost everything under the Old Testament. I might have missed a few verses on tithes and offerings. Uh, but now we're going to come into the Gospels and we're going to see what the Lord Jesus Christ adds to our understanding concerning tithes and offerings and giving. And this should really help solidify our doctrine on this. So let's look at our lesson here. In some regards, the Gospels can be considered transitional books. I know the Gospels are in the New Testament, but truthfully, they are transitional. They're kind of, so they straddle both the Old Testament and the New Testament because Jesus Christ is transitioning the body of believers, the Jews and the, the proselytes from the Old Covenant and preparing them for the new and living way. They transitioned God's people from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Jesus operated as a prophet under the Old Covenant, fulfilling the Messianic Scriptures. And we need to understand that. Galatians says he was born of a virgin, born under the law. And so when Jesus Christ did his earthly ministry, you'll find many instances where he would heal somebody and say, now go show the gift that Moses commanded, or go show yourself to the priest as Moses commanded. He told his disciples, he said, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, therefore do all they tell you to do, but don't be like them. So even Jesus Christ was submitted under the law, and we know that from these passages that a bulk of the Gospels are under the Old Covenant. And then when Jesus Christ dies and is raised up from the dead, that's when we kick off the New Covenant because he's ratified the New Testament with his shed blood. So I know the Gospels are in the New Covenant, they're, excuse me, they're in the New Testament, but that does not mean the Gospels are New Covenant. All right, you understand that? Nobody could be born again until Christ was raised from the dead. The born again experience is a New Covenant experience. Just to explain that to you. Uh, he then died and ratified the New Covenant with his blood. So with Jesus Christ, the Word, the entire Old Testament became flesh and dwelt among mankind and prepared them for the new covenant. So we know John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But what word is that? That's Genesis to Malachi. That's the Word that became flesh. That's the these, the thous, the don'ts, thou shalt not, the Ten Commandments, turtle doves and red heifers and sacrifices. The Word from Genesis to Malachi that's the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. Through the life of Jesus Christ, we can develop an even clearer picture of the heart of God behind tithes and offerings. And so that's what we're going to look at in this lesson. As Jesus Christ moved about as the word made flesh, as he's interacting with the Jews under the old covenant, we're going to see what he has to say about tithes and offerings and further help us catch the heart of God. The more, you, the more you're around somebody, the more you know how they react to things. The more you're around them, you, you know how they'll feel and re respond to things. I'm currently reading a book on Navy SEALs and their leadership philosophy. And the, the, the author was just talking about, said in the, in the SEALs, he said, we train so much together, so many hundreds of hours even before deployment. He said, we can rec each, recognize each other's silhouette in the dark in our team. 
We recognize each other's posture. We know exactly how each one of us is going to respond when we breach a door. And that only comes through spending that much time with one another in the SEAL teams for, for military purposes. Now think about if you and I spend a lot of time with Jesus Christ and a lot of time with Jesus Christ, not crying out to him to clean up our mess, but spending time with him because we love him, how much more you'll get to know him in his heart concerning everything, even tithes and offerings. So let's look at the Lord's first offering. I think this is fascinating. Matthew 2, 11, we're very familiar with this passage. And when they were coming to the house, this is talking about the wise men from the east, the Magi, they saw the young child, that's the, I believe that's the Greek word technon, which means um, Jesus would have been about two or three years old. So we often see the picture of the wise men coming to the infant, but by the time they found him, he was not an infant. He was at least two years old, if not maybe three or four. They found the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Notice these wise men come for worship. They come to worship Jesus Christ first and foremost. And when they had opened their treasures, and this is the whole reason they've come from the east. It took them two years to find Christ. They said, we, we saw his star in the east two years ago. And that's how Herod knew how to kill everybody two years and younger. They had opened their treasures, they presented or offered unto him gifts or offering. And they offered or gave a gift to Jesus Christ of gold and frankincense and myrrh. We see this as the very first offering Jesus Christ ever received. And it was demonstrated as an act of worship. And people came from a long way away to give to the Lord of their treasure. And we, are gonna, we see, we know from the story that this was used to promote the gospel and to supply the needs of the preacher. Because what happens after this is Herod begins to butcher the children and Joseph is warned in a dream to flee and to go down into Egypt. So how do you in the middle of the night flee and to be gone for a long period of time if you don't have the resources? But here the resources are presented. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we see this offering comes at a very critical time so that Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus can live and subsist while they're foreigners in Egypt, while Herod is butchering children all over um, uh, that part, Bethlehem, Galilee, uh, where, where they were from. The wise men from the east sought the Christ child out for the sole purpose of worshiping him. That, that's a, we can preach that all day long. That's why we seek Jesus, not for healing, not for money, and not, not to be blessed. We seek Jesus to worship him, and everything else follows. Anything apart from that becomes... Uh, selfish. There's nothing wrong with seeking Jesus for healing. There's nothing wrong with seeking Jesus for prosperity. There's nothing wrong with seeking Jesus. And we ought to seek God, but we, the first and foremost reason we worship or seek him is to worship him because he is God. Pastor Vaughn used to say, if God never did another thing for you, he'd still be worthy of worshiping. We often forget that. We often get selfish and we think Jesus is our sugar daddy. And we only come to church when we need something. That's using God. But if we would come to church because we love him and because we need him, there's no telling what he would do for us. Even as parents, you can tell when your kids are using you. And mom and dad doesn't appreciate it much. Why are you being so sweet to me? Mom, you know how much I love you. Sounds like a lot of Christians at the altar. <laughs> what do you want? Oh, nothing. I just want to tell you how much I love No, you don't. That's not why you're here. What do you want? But there's these new shoes I like. We should come to the Lord because we love him. Too many Christians are fair weather. They only show up in the house of God when they've cursed their life and it's falling apart and now they need God's CPR. 
But if you wouldn't curse your life, it wouldn't fall apart, and you wouldn't need God for CPR. You could worship God because you loved him. Amen. We see in their very actions a very similar pattern as prescribed in the law. They sought the Lord's habitation, they worshiped him, and they presented their gifts. That's exactly what we saw in last Sunday's lesson. They sought his holy habitation. Where was the Christ child? Where is he living? And they worshiped him, and after they worshiped him, they presented a gift. This famous and valuable offering of gold, frankincense, and myrrh supplied the family's needs while they were vagabonds living in Egypt. I, I, I heard a fascinating story about, I can't remember if it's frankincense or myrrh. They're both basically tree saps that are dried out and burned. Maybe I think it's frankincense is the one that's the most valuable, and it's the most valuable because the trees only grow on the sides of cliffs, and it's very dangerous to get to, and you have to lower yourself on ropes to extract the resin, the gum from the sap, which is then collected, dried out, hardened, and sold. And because they're territorial, and they uh, nobody owns the cliffs, and this is this goes back to ancient history and culture. They were like in no man's lands, and so you had territorial disputes. And so what the men would do who were harvesting the frankincense is they would throw snakes in their trees, asps. So nobody would come to their territory to steal their frankincense. So to extract frankincense was not just dangerous because it was on the side of a cliff and you had to lower yourself in ropes, but you risk running into your enemies or your, um, your competition snakes that he put there purposely to guard his trees as if to say, this is my side of the cliff. These are my trees. Leave me alone. So to come with a whole chest full of this stuff, we understand why it was so precious because it was not cheaply mined or produced which I think is a neat historical fact, because you're like, yeah, frankincense, myrrh, what's, what's the big deal? When you study it out, you find out it's a pretty big deal. So that's the Lord's first offering. So we see the Lord does not have a problem, even in his earthly ministry, receiving money from people. And it is, nobody's rebuked for it. There's a common teaching right now that says you shouldn't give, and that you don't have to tithe or give offerings. It's, it's flat-out heresy. And they do it because there's such a kickback against Christian television and all the money-grubbing that goes on. Just because there's some perverted preachers on Christian television pimping the body of Christ doesn't mean the truth is undone. We still give tithes and offerings. The Lord's first sermon on giving. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, part of his sermon, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering, uh, your offering gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Notice Jesus Christ really raises the standard on giving. This is going to make it actually harder to receive offerings in church because he's teaching us don't don't give an offering if you're not right with everybody in your life, especially a brother in Christ. If If you've had a fight with your spouse, this is saying you shouldn't present an offering to the Lord. Now, it was, oh, then I'm free to keep your money. Well, no, you curse yourself that way too. This is, if you know how financial works in the spirit realm, you want to give because you want to bless the kingdom because you need God's support, but it is also a motivation to go and get things right with your spouse. Or if you got upset with your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law or your, your co-worker in the body of Christ or your helps minister or whatever it is, this, Jesus says you don't have a right to present a gift to the Lord if you are not right with your brothers or sisters around you. He says, first, leave your gift there, go and make it right with one another, and then come and present the gift. 
The Lord sets this high standard. Don't give if you're out of sorts with other believers. That's a pretty high order. We don't hear much teaching on that, but it's very clear in the scriptures. It's probably because it's hard enough to get people to give when they're out of sorts, much less to keep them giving even when they're not proper with one another. It is hypocritical to want to bless the Lord whom we can't see if we don't want to first have peace with our brother whom we can see. This is like bringing a gift to a birthday party, but you have hostility towards one of the other, not gifts, but one of the other guests. It's like uh, we go to Marlon's birthday party to honor him. Shannon and I, we both show up, and I've got a gift from Marlon, but as soon as I come with this gift from Marlon, I see Shannon over there, and I throw a temper tantrum in my heart. I've just ruined Marlon's birthday party. His, two of his dearest friends in his life can't get along at his own birthday party. How dishonorable. Why can't we settle the dispute to honor Marlon at his birthday party? It's the same way trying to present an offering in the house of God when your heart is not right, or in this case, someone's not right with you. You got to be, be a peacemaker. Jesus started off the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the peacemakers. So we want to make sure we have that attitude working in our life. Uh, the, the hostility is likely to ruin the event for the honorary host. What else did the Lord say? The Lord has a critique of charity. That means charitable giving, what the King James calls almsgiving. The word almsgiving in the King James means demonstrations of mercy. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness or your alms before men to be noticed by them. Uh, right now in America, we, we have what are called SJWs, social justice warriors. It's also called activism, slacktivism, hacktivism. This is where people want to give all this charitable stuff to be cool, because who doesn't want to put shoes on orphans? Who doesn't want to dig a water well in the bush of Africa? Who, who doesn't want to buy a bag of rice for some kids in Thailand? But if we're not careful, that's become so cool, especially with social media. Now, people don't really care about the people they're doing it for. They care about the attention they get because I went on a mission trip and we fed orphans. I went on a mission trip and we bought a bunch of toms to give to kids. It's all about being seen. This even goes on in churches. It even goes on in Cookful. We want to brag about we did this or we did that, and you advertise it. Jesus Christ preaches against that very vehemently. In the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So this is the type of giving the Lord is adjusting here. Not tithes and offerings, but giving towards those that are poor. Because he says, you, you don't want to be seen of men. Don't do this to be seen of men. Don't do it and put your name on it. How many churches do something socially active and they put their name on it? That's violating the Gospels. But what it does in our day and age is it gives you political clout. So now the church is involved in political favors and not the favors of God. I would much rather nobody in town ever know what I do for God. And God said he would see me in private and reward me openly and promote me openly. But if you do it publicly to be seen, Jesus says you have your reward, which is a bunch of political shenanigans. So when you do your righteousness, your good deeds, your social activism feeding the poor and clothing the homeless and whatever people do that's so popular and trendy right now, which really isn't changing the world at all. It's only getting worse. For all the slacktivism and social media accolades that we're talking about, the world is not getting better. So obviously it's not working. But boy, don't you get a lot of thumbs up on Facebook. Isn't your church the cool, trendy, fastest growing one in town? Taking the holy tithe and giving it to some social cause when it's supposed to go towards winning the lost. Jesus is addressing that here. Don't do it to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
I want rewards in heaven. I'm not doing all of this for the world right now. I'm doing this for rewards in heaven. I'm doing this for my Father. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you. Put it on social media. Put it on Facebook. And all these churches are talking about now, we did over 15,000 hours of community service. You have your reward. We, we mobilized all 9,000 members of our church. We accomplished $5.6 million worth of community service this weekend. You have your reward, and you're nothing but a social justice warrior. You're not a gospel preacher. And they put it all over the Internet. They put it all over the social media, and they advertise it. And it's really nothing but communitarianism, which is a godless pagan movement towards globalism. And the church is ignorant enough in the states to get caught up with that. And... I don't have time for it, and this church will never be a part of any of that, just so you know. Don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. <laughs> I don't want to be honored by men. I want to be honored by God. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's all they ever get. There was a church in California that just made me, I wanted to chuck my phone when I read the article. They bragged about mobilizing 10,000 members of their multi-campus church to do 4.5 or $5.4 million worth of community service over 48 hours. Weeding flower beds, picking up trash, you know, building ramps for the widows. I mean, and that's all great stuff. But how come you couldn't activate 10,000 members of your church to go door-to-door evangelizing and preaching the gospel? And if you did, would you put that in the newspaper? You probably wouldn't because you know the whole community in South California would call you a bunch of haters and closed-minded bigots for saying Jesus is the only way, but he is the only way. And this is a church, 10,000, who doesn't want to be 10,000 members multi-campus? I don't. I don't want to be 10,000 members. I don't want to be multi-campus because I don't think it's the will of God. Because you're doing it through slacktivism and through a bunch of carnal anti-scriptural techniques, mostly through marketing and Peace Corps philosophies. And this is what Jesus Christ is addressing. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. That's like the basic first sermon you learn in theology school or seminary. But you don't hear messages on that anymore. All you hear is all this false hope junk. Make the world a better place. It's not going to get better. It's sinking into a lake of fire. And all you can do is preach the gospel and get people to jump. But when you give to the poor... Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a lot of secrecy. That's a lot of keeping it under the table. So that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Amen. In this passage, the Lord focuses on the heart behind charitable giving. Our giving should not be about showing off or to garner attention from man. That's not why we give. Right now, this community justice stuff is very, very popular with churches. In fact, one man said, um, he said, who doesn't want to feel good about themselves? Like that's the purpose and motivation behind all this community justice, feeling good about yourself. Well, I thought we were helping people. If you want to feel good about yourself, get born again and obey God, you'll feel great. Obeying God makes you feel great about yourself. Disobeying God makes you feel hopeless. So I'm going to go violate the Sermon on the Mount to feel good because I can't obey. It's, it's carnal. It's a carnal gospel. Our giving, whether it is tithes, offerings, or charity, should always be as unto the Lord. 
The sounding of the trumpet is possibly a reference to the sound of coinage filling the benevolence chest called a trumpet. And you see that in the next section here. In the, um, the gate of the women's gate in the temple in the time of Christ, where the widow was throwing her mites in, there were 13 collection containers that they called trumpets because they had small openings and they bellowed out. And so Jesus would have known how much they were given because you could hear the money falling in there because it's all stone. And so it's not a very quiet thing. So she just drops in two little mites, tink, tink, and everybody before her is just pouring in bags of change, bags of gold. And so they called that sounding the trumpet because just a little bit would have just made a little sound. Pouring a lot in would have been a lot of sound. So it is possible that the reference to Jesus saying, don't sound your trumpet like the hypocrites is standing around making sure everybody can hear you dump all this money in to these collection containers. It's just kind of a neat historical thing. There's no historical reference to actually sounding a a literal trumpet, but here you do have benevolence containers that were called trumpets by the Jews because they bellowed out and looked like trumpets. It's just kind of a neat insight into his historicity. So Jesus watches the offering. If he watches offerings, I suppose we can. I've told you I was in Chile, South America one time on a mission trip. We were in a southern, well, it wasn't, I guess a very southern Baptist church because it was in Punta Arenas, which is on the Straits of Magellan. You don't, it's the southernmost city in the world unless you count the little military stuff installations on Antarctica. But anyway, Punta Arenas, Chile on the Straits of Magellan, southernmost city in the world. So, southern, super southern Baptist. And um, they they had on their blackboards behind the pulpit, they had the names of every family and what they had given the previous offering written out. That would not fly in America because they would expose the frauds in your church. All the rich hoity-toity people that don't give a dime or they tie, they tip God and then the poor people that give everything they can. It wouldn't fly. I really appreciated it, seeing it in Chile going, Wow. You guys are really pushing the envelope here. And it had just became part of their custom. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. This is in a reference to the, the gate of the women, or the women's gate, because that was as far into the temple that women were permitted to enter in uh, first century Israel. And in these treasuries were these two rooms on either side where people would come in and they would give their alms or their offerings into the trumpets, the 13 containers. And he began observing how the people were putting money in the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And he would have been able to tell by how much they were pouring in. They used coins. They didn't have paper money back then. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which were about, uh, amount, to, which were, amount to one cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all she had to live on. So he would, again, would have been able to hear from the sound of the coinage. She just dropped in two little mites, which equal about one cent, which of course is hardly anything. And all these other men would have come with their big bags of gold coinage and would have just poured it in. You could almost maybe hear the pride. It just didn't stop. Just the change hitting the bottom. Ching, 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 ching. Of course, there's a heart condition. Uh, Gertie and Steve-O and I went to a church in Indy where uh, I, I, I was a little irritated with it. But the head usher, we had these, um, I don't remember what kind of baskets we passed. Or maybe it was a metal ba- We had like, I think we had metal baskets, Gertie, you remember? And Greg, that was the name of the head usher, good guy. But the culture of that church was that if you didn't give big, you were worth nothing. 
And so they were concerned people would feel bad if all they had was change to give. And if you people heard you pour change in there, you would, uh, you would look bad. So they actually put padding in the bottom so you wouldn't have to be, feel, feel embarrassed if all you had to give was change. And I remember thinking the attitude behind that's totally wrong. I'm proud to throw change in a basket because it's what I got. And in fact, even I think when we took over church here for the first couple of years, I said, let's throw this change in there. Let's make it loud. And for a season, we passed the buckets and people would sling their change in there. And it was just to swing against the, the other extreme that we experienced in Indy. So it's always a heart condition. In Indy, they were embarrassed to put their change in there because I don't have big money to give. And if all I give is change and all, you hear it hit the bottom and you know I'm not putting in a check or cash. And so there was a, a shameful pride behind that. And they were trying to compensate. And I said, no, be proud of even the pennies because Jesus bragged on this woman's pennies. And then here, these men were proud of their coinage because it was a symbol of how much wealth they had. So it's always, you're always adjusting what you do for the heart condition behind it. The technique is neither here nor there. It's the heart behind how you give, when you give, why you give, that's either gonna make you or break you. It's either gonna cause you to honor God or cause God to be irritated with you. The treasury was an area in Herod's temple in the court of the women where 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles were stationed. These chests were marked for different needs, sacrifices, incense, wood, etc. Nine trumpets were for the legally obligated offerings and four trumpets for voluntary gifts, typically for the poor. These funds were used to maintain the temple's needs. The sound of the coinage falling into the trumpet's bell would reveal how much coinage had been given. Jesus commended this widow for giving from her heart to help maintain the house of God. Notice he says she barely gave anything, but she gave more than they all. Because even with nothing, she put God's house first. He said she gave all that she had to live on, and she was doing it to maintain the house of God. Totally putting her house second. That lines up with, I think, Habakkuk, which says, Do you know why you have a bag that you put coins in, and yet you, if you have a hole, you earn a wage to put a ba- in a bag with a hole in it? Because you go home to your fancy houses, and my house lies in ruin. So Jesus is just confirming the word of the prophet Habakkuk, and basically saying, whenever you put God's house first, you're going to be blessed and called out before God and promoted. But when you put your house first, like so many Christians do, three, four services a week, your house will always lie in ruin because you don't help build the house of God. That's, it's a critical spiritual principle. You reap what you sow. If you put God first, he'll always take care of you. Dr. Sumrall said over and over again, you'll never get in trouble building God's kingdom, but you will always fail trying to build your kingdom. So that's why we, we make a big emphasis on that. You put God's kingdom first. I, I think Matthew says the same thing. Seek you first the kingdom And all these things which the Gentiles do seek after will be added unto you. It's that simple. But when you seek to save your life, Jesus Christ said you will lose it. But if you, for the gospel's sake, will lose your life, you will save it. You can't outserve God. You can't outbless him. He will always pay back to you in great, great, great dividends. Amen. So Jesus watches the offering. I, I, I know sometimes we have guests, I can hear their hearts when we do our offerings up here and we put the baskets and I stand up here and I know that it bugs people. Don't bother me a bit. It's biblical. I don't, I don't see everybody, they fold their thing up, they pray over it. I don't, I don't, I mean, I have every biblical right here to stand in there and because it's Jesus, he knew what they were giving. I don't care. I mean, I tell you, I don't even know what you guys give. All I see is a blank chart that wa- lets me watch how you're doing financially over the years. 
So if you own a business and your money starts to go down, I can call you up and, are you okay? Is your business okay? Can I pray for you? Do I, you need some business wisdom? What can I help you with? Or it also helps me predict when people are about to jump ship. Because before you jump ship, your money plummets. And I've seen that time and time again. But it also helps me to rejoice when people's giving goes up. I don't even know what the units are on the side of the chart. Because it's always different. And there's nothing. There's just tick marks, and so I can kind of see. And I know they're at different scales, but I don't have a clue. So I have every right to watch if I wanted to. My pastor does. He knows exactly how much everybody gives. I don't. I don't care. It helps me love you more. It helps me believe with you more. It helps me answer the phone call at 3 a.m., not knowing whether you're a God thief or you're a church blesser. It helps me to be unbiased because I am still a man and I still have a strong sense of justice. And I don't think you should get any of my time at 3 a.m. if you're ripping God off. Amen. All right. I feel a little better now. That was kind of therapy for pastor. The rule of giving. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, we all know this scripture. And so this is a general rule of giving. This is not just limited to tithes and offerings because the context of Luke chapter 6 is what you do with your enemies. The whole premise starts off, love them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And don't, don't just be good to those that are good to you. Even the heathen do that. And then he goes on to talk about how to give to them. And if they ask, give them more. And if they want to go a mile, go two. If they hit you on the cheek, give them the other cheek. This is a passage about how to deal with enemies who the Jews up until this point had every right to go to war with. You hit my cheek, I cut you in half. You take my jacket, I steal your house. So this is the context of this famous verse that's always taken out of context by TBN preachers. For selfish gain. There is an element of it that applies to financial giving, but we have to understand the whole context because just prior to this, it says, judge not. Then it says, give mercy. Then it says, show justice. And so now it says, give and it shall be given. Give what? Give judgment, it'll be given back to you. Give mercy, it'll be given back to you. Give justice, it'll be given back to you. Give forgiveness, it'll be given back to you. Give hatred, it'll be given back to you. We can also apply it to money, though, but it is a general rule of giving. It's not just limited to money. I want you to understand that. I've never heard it taught in its proper context, ever. I've never probably, probably taught it in its proper context because we get caught up in this hurtful cycle of using it for money. It has an application to that, but it's not limited to that. This verse is the conclusion of a long teaching on how to treat your enemies and oppressors. The previous verse deals with mercy, judgment, condemnation, and forgiveness. This verse is not about financial giving, but the heart of it can be applied to it. There's nothing in this passage of Luke 6 that has anything to do with money. So this verse has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the concept of giving. Because, again, the verses leading up to it are giving judgment giving mercy, giving condemnation, giving justice, giving forgiveness, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. With whatever measure you meet, it shall be meet back to you. Judge not lest you be judged. You reap what you sow. So, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. It can be applied to giving, but the context 
originally is how you treat your enemies. And I, I don't know why, how we butchered that or got it so far out of context, but go read Luke 6 there and see if it's not so. They ask a jacket, give them two. They want a mile, give them two miles. That's what he said. They, if they want a cheek, give them both cheeks. Give. And yet you're probably like me. You've only ever heard it taught in regards to tithes and offerings. I want us to be thoroughly established. You can apply it there because it's giving in general. But the context is giving mercy, giving forgiveness versus giving judgment and giving condemnation. So if, you have, if you've been given mercy or if you give mercy, you'll receive mercy. Maybe we should stop there and settle for a second. If you give mercy, you'll get mercy. If you give condemnation, you'll get condemnation. If you give forgiveness, you'll receive forgiveness. If you give critical judgment, we're not talking about investigative judgment that we all have to practice, but judging someone to damnation, that's what you'll get. You'll be condemned. But now if you're always giving mercy and forgiveness and giving people the benefit of the doubt, that's what you'll receive as well. And, you know, if you give, it'll be given back to you. We understand that too. That we, can, we can teach that, but I want us to be balanced in this. The Lord's endorsement of tithing. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise, which is dill and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matter of the law. Judgment, justice, mercy, faith or faithfulness. These ought you to have done, that is to tithe on your spice rack and not to leave the other undone. So think about that. He says, uh, you tithe on everything in your household, but you omit the weightier matters of the law, which lets us know there are certain things in the law God considers more important than others. There are certain things that he says are weightier, are more important, and those are heart conditions. The heart condition of justice, the heart condition of mercy, the heart condition of faithfulness. Who cares if you tithe on everything if you never show up to the house of God? Who cares if you tithe on even the cinnamon in your spice rack, but you can't forgive your neighbor? Those are the weightier matters of the law. This, and this is a severe rebuke of Matthew 23. This is one of eight woes. Woe unto you, he says eight times. This severe rebuke reveals that God does view certain things in the law as more important than others. Here the hypocrites were happy to tithe on spices, but failed to accomplish the weightier matters of the heart. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You know, being faithful to Jesus Christ is a very weighty matter. It's one that the church is being talked out of in this modern day and age. Jesus said both tithing and the weightier matters were important and should not be left undone. Notice, Jesus never tweaks tithing the whole time of his ministry. This is only one of two passages that he deals with tithing. And here he says, don't leave it undone. This is as important or it shouldn't be left undone. No more than mercy and forgiveness and judgment or justice and faithfulness. It, 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 they cannot be left undone. So this is the only really tweak or adjustment. The only time he addresses tithing other than one example where he says, a man says, I give tithes of all and I'm glad I'm not like this pagan Gentile over here. That example. We need to understand that there are weightier matters than others, but the Lord says here, don't leave this undone. That doesn't mean we go tithe on our spice cabinet tonight, but you understand the Lord says it's that critical. He wasn't about to stop them from tithing on dill or cumin, or cinnamon, or nutmeg, or curry. But he said, more important to me is that you know justice and faithfulness and mercy. The Lord's financial partners. Here's something nobody ever considers. The 12 were with him, 
and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven devils had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. Notice these women, it's always women are the big givers. Men tend to be kind of stingy. It just seems to be the case. Uh, they contributed. They followed with Jesus. They were part of his entourage, and they contributed to his ministry out of their financial means. We see that Jesus had what we would call ministry partners. We get that. We understand it. They supported Christ's earthly ministry from their personal income. Jesus traveled with a small entourage of no less than 12 men at any given time. Sometimes as many as 70. He'd send the 70 out. And sometimes multitudes. Well, where'd they stay? Where'd they eat? This stuff was purchased. The cost of eating and traveling surely produced a financial burden that had to be relieved somehow. Here again, we see offerings going to advance the gospel. But on top of that, we see the Lord had to have an accountant. If you have that much money, if you can support 12 people at the minimum, maybe as much as 70 to three or 400 at any given time, you got to have some finances, handling, management. And so he, we know from the scriptures, the Lord Jesus had an accountant or a financial planner. Of course, his name was Judas, and that didn't end up so well for him. John 13, and after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, Judas, therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. They just assumed when Jesus told Judas, go do what you got to do quickly, this was a common conversation. This is something that had happened before. Jesus would send Judas out to go buy supplies because that's what they assumed was happening here, or go give to the poor. You don't assume something is the case if it hasn't happened a thousand times before. What you must do, do quickly. Notice they don't say, they don't assume he's going to go raid the Roman centurions and steal their weapons. That, that just doesn't even occur to them. But the, the, the disciples, they think either one or two things are happening here. He's either going to go buy more supplies or he's going to go give money to the poor. Because apparently this was a commandment. Go do what you got to do. Has happened many, many times before. It was part of their inner workings of their ministry. G Judas was the accountant. He held the box that the money went in from the, the uh, ministry partners. And this lets us know there was also a budget. Every household, every single person, every ministry should have a budget. And you should have line items budgeted in there so you have money to do things with. Jesus had an accountant or treasurer to help manage his ministry's finances. Jesus is no fool. He operates in wisdom. Judas was the Lord's accountant. And the Lord knew from the beginning that he was stealing, the Bible tells us. It's evident that the Lord's ministry had a budget. From the scriptures, we see that there was budget money for supplies for the Passover feast, benevolence for the poor, and crusade meals and mass feedings. When they go to feed the multitudes, the 3,000 and the 5,000, uh, Jesus says, give them something to eat. And one of the disciples says, really? I don't know if 200 penny worth would be enough here. Do you want us to go do that? Which implies they had the money to go buy food for everybody which means they had a line item. You see this, if you don't have a budget, you don't have the wisdom of Jesus Christ in your life. But again, we're looking at this because what does the Lord say about tithes and offerings in the Bible? In the Gospels, what we're demonstrating here is that he received offerings 
into his ministry, but he also had an accountant that helped him use it wisely. He always had money he needed to either pay the taxes, to give to the poor. That was a constant part of their ministry, giving to the poor, or it was to feed hungry folks or to buy their own supplies. So part of offerings and tithes, and we can assure you as a church, we have a budget. Every quarter we post the quarter breakdown. I don't know where it's posted right now since we destroyed one of the rooms in the remodel. But if you're a tither, you have every right to see what our budget looks like so you know what we're doing with our money. We don't disclose the individual incomes of everybody that's on staff here, but we, we have a section that says, you know, income or payroll. And it's typically usually less than 30% of the church's income, which is crazy compared to the national average. The national average is about 54 or 58% of income goes toward, church ties and offerings goes towards payroll. So we're like, you know, 60% less than that. We are a very streamlined ministry, which means 70% of what we receive goes towards the gospel. Now, there's nothing wrong with paying folks to do the word because the labor is worthy of his hire, but I want you to know we have a budget, we have a huge savings account, we have money we're doing stuff with, and it all goes towards the gospel. Amen. Just want to fulfill you in. We try to keep as transparent as possible. Not like the politicians call themselves transparent. We actually are transparent. If you're a tither, we'll give you the record. You can see what we do around here. We just don't post it for every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wants to fly through here and criticize us. All right, offerings the Lord received because he was in the habit of receiving offerings. The Lord Jesus received numerous unique offerings in his earthly ministry, and they include a boat offering to preach the gospel from. It says he went and got into a boat, pushed out, sat down, and every, the multitude sat down on the hillside, and he preached to them. Whose boat was it? Somebody, gave, somebody was losing income. To give Jesus a boat to preach from, they're not fishing. They're not transporting. They're losing income, so it's an offering. If... If he didn't, he'd have to rent the boat, which would have come from the box. But here we see somebody giving him an offering. You can use my boat for the sermon. And somebody pointed out, why would Jesus do that? Well, if you've ever been at the lake, you can speak, and it carries across the lake, even in a whisper. So Jesus could sit down on the lake. The hillside acts as an amphitheater, and he can preach to 10,000 without any amplification because his voice would have carried on to the waters and up on the hillside. Pretty cool. Amen. He received an alabaster box full of costly ointment as a thanksgiving offering. He received two fishes and five loaves offering to feed the masses. That came from a little schoolboy. Jesus stole a kid's lunch. Actually, the boy gave it, and he walked home with 12 baskets full. The Lord multiplied that offering. Amen. He received an alabaster box full of spikenard. There's two different instances of alabaster boxes in the Bible. One is a thanksgiving offering where Jesus said, to whom much is forgiven, much is thanked, much is loved. He rebukes a Pharisee at that instance, that woman, woman weeps over feet. Here we have Mary Magdalene breaks the alabaster box of spikenard in preparation for the Lord's death. Two different instances of women bringing costly ointment. We know of Mary Magdalene's box that it was worth about a one year's wage, 30-something thousand dollars, $35,000. That's how expensive it was. And Judas freaked out because he thought that money should be spent on the, on the income, on the budget. And the Lord said, the poor you have with you always. She has done this in preparation for my death. Leave her alone because Judas was a money grubber. He'd have been really good on Christian television. He received a foal offering, that is the colt of a donkey, a baby donkey. 
for his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Actually, there was a, a, a full size and a smaller one. One of the Gospels ex, ex, uh, reveals that there were two animals that he borrowed. He said, go, you'll find, ask, tell them the master needs it, and they'll give it to you. So he's a transportation offering. Somebody let them borrow his car to do the ministry with. And it fulfilled prophecy. Wouldn't that be cool? You're the one whose donkey fulfills prophecy about the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. But then again, our offerings could fulfill prophecy too. And we could supply the needs of the gospel. And he, he received a conference room offering for the Last Supper. When he said, um, we go prepare this supper, the Last Supper, they said, where? He said, well, go here, this place, tell them the master has need of their room and he'll give it to you. And so they get the whole upper room. It's like a conference room. It's like a banquet hall that is given to them that he might otherwise have to rent or borrow. But it was given as an offering. And so what we're seeing is people were always readily giving to the Lord Jesus for whatever he had need of. And this was just a banquet meal that establishes communion and the Last Supper and was critical for the fulfillment of all righteousness. A room was given as an offering to the Lord's ministry, which is very similar to the room that the Shunammite built for the prophet Elijah. I mean, the offerings don't, aren't just money. They can be anything that the kingdom has need of. So other things Jesus said about giving, briefly, and of course there's a plenty of scripture here, you can go study these out. Jesus taught other things in regard to giving in general. Our giving should be as unto the Lord, and that's what we need to make sure we do it as unto the Lord. Uh, that's the story in Matthew 25 about when were, when were you naked, Lord? When were you hungry? When did we clothe you? When were you in prison? And the Lord said, as much as you've done it as unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. That's that passage. When you do things for the least of the brethren, you do it as unto the Lord. So sometimes the offering doesn't necessarily come into the church, but you're helping somebody else and you're doing it as unto the Lord. Giving should be done with heavenly treasure in mind. And this passage says, you know, don't lay up for yourself treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When you give, you give with heavenly treasures in mind. Pride negates your tithes and offerings. That's the story where there's the, uh, the self-righteous Pharisee and he says, I give tithes of all, I give offerings. I fast twice weekly. And I'm, he says, I'm so glad I'm not like this Samaritan here, this Gentile, this pagan. And, and then the pagan, he can't even lift his eyes up towards heaven. He smites his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you verily that that pagan went away justified and righteous that day and the Pharisee did not. Even though the Pharisee gave Ties and offerings, even though he tithed twice weekly, his pride negated everything he did for God. All the good works were negated by the man's self-righteous pride. So pride negates your tithes and offerings. Now the money's still used, but there's no reward for you. And, of course, Acts 20, 35, the Lord Jesus, quoting the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, said it's better to give than to receive. That's something the Lord Jesus Christ taught. It's not quoted in the Gospels. It's quoted in the book of Acts. But it was something they were taught by the Lord Jesus we know that one. That's almost like the golden rule that you're raised up in the South. It's better to give than to receive. We see from these passages that Jesus Christ did nothing to change the Old Testament precedent or standard for tithes and offerings. He adjusts nothing. He raises the standard, if anything. Jesus received offerings. It should come as no surprise that the only corrections on giving Jesus ever discussed were concerning motives and heart conditions. He was always tightening the focus on the heart because that's what he wants more than our money. He wants our heart. May we learn to give with a pure, joyful, and generous heart. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson. I pray that those that have listened and heard have had ears to hear and that they've changed their, changed their life and blessed their understanding.
May these lessons bless all those that listen in the future. We thank you for your word and allowing us to have something to give back towards you. Thank you for saving us. May our lives be a living offering and a living sacrifice for you. In Jesus' name, amen.